0: Today on Blue 58, I like the Packers just the way they are. But that doesn't mean I wouldn't change anything if I had the chance. Let's work through a few ways we could make the entire Packers organization just a little bit better. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58. I'm your host, John Meerdink. happy to be with you here yet again for another Excellent episode. At least I think it's going to be excellent. This one's going to be a little bit fun. Not talking about anything going on currently with the team because, quite frankly, there's not all that much going on with the team currently. Instead, I would like to get a little bit hypothetical. And I would like to get hypothetical for one very specific reason. I'm reading a book right now about Julius Caesar. And one of the things that stuck out early on in the book was something that was pointed out about the. The reason that he had a lot of the success that he did. This is something that's true of all of us, so it's not like I'm taking a a shot at Julius Caesar here, one of the great military commanders of all time, and even if I was, there's not a lot he can do about it at this particular point. But one of the big reasons that he was a successful military commander was because of the condition of the Roman army at the time when he took it over, or the part of the army that he was working with. The Roman army, as anybody who knows anything about military history would know, could be the greatest military force that has ever existed. You know, adjusting for eras and things like that. It's certainly up there. At its peak, it could utterly annihilate anybody it came up against. But it wasn't always that way. And the conditions that allowed Julius Caesar to perform the way he did in the field were kind of put in place by one guy. He was a guy, a Roman citizen, a Roman military leader by the name of Gaius Marius, and he enacted something called the Marian Reforms. And I won't go into all the little details about exactly what happened, but basically he turned the Roman military into kind of a bunch of different groups of Uh, people from different social classes with different equipment and and all sorts of things like that into one solid, unified group that would be a lot closer to what we would recognize as a competent military today. Everybody was on the same page. You had people who weren't part-time soldiers anymore. He got everybody into fighting shape and kept them there. And as a result, they could build a little bit of institutional memory And teach other people how to be better soldiers. And as a result of that, the Roman military grew stronger and stronger the longer these reforms stayed in place. And by the time Caesar comes along, he just had to worry about strategy, not about the army itself. And this was a huge benefit to Rome militarily for everybody who was commanding the army, but for Julius Caesar in particular. The strength of the army also kind of destroyed the Republic eventually as a byproduct. But hey, you can't win them all. Overall, probably a net positive for Rome because they stuck around as an empire for quite a while. To tie this to the Packers, I think we are in a period right now that could be called the Murphy reforms. Mark Murphy is making some changes to the way the Packers operate. He's been in charge in Green Bay for a while, but only over the last couple of years has he really decided that, hey, this is how things are going to operate. I want things to be different and things are going to have to be different. And as a result, we've seen Ted Thompson transition out of his role as general manager. And there are some health considerations there, too. But we've got Brian Gutekunst in place instead. Mike McCarthy was fired by Murphy and replaced by Matt Lafleur. There's also the new power structure in place in Green Bay, and hopefully, like the reforms that we talked about in Rome, this is going to lead to a period of sustained success for the Packers. Hopefully, it creates the conditions that the Packers need to succeed. But related to that, I wondered, if I was king of the Packers, or whatever Mark Murphy's actual functional title should be, if I was emperor of the Packers, if we tie it back to Rome, what reforms what I institute, what would I do? I think the Packers are in really good shape and there's not a whole lot that I would really change. I'm even kind of a fan of the power structure. I don't have a whole lot of bad things to say about it right now, though I have argued since the beginning that if this all goes south, we've got one guy to point to here. We know who to blame, which is a good thing and a bad thing. So I wouldn't change a whole lot of stuff like that, but I think there are some things that could make the Packers make a little bit more sense as an organization and as a product on the field. A lot of it has to do with, I think, just how the Packers present themselves. So we're going to talk a lot about history and uniforms and stuff like that, but I think that's all part of the overall picture. So let's talk about it. Let's institute the Meerdink reforms. The first thing I would do if I was emperor of the Packers would be to really work to help this team embrace The weirder aspects of its history. When we look at the Packers right now, and as the Packers kind of present themselves, you would think that there's really only three eras in Packers history, and they kind of all happened one right after another. You had Curly Lambeau, then you had Vince Lombardi, then you had the Wolf-Holmgren pairing that took over, and we've basically been living with the results of their work ever since then. You could probably even call that the Harlan era, Bob Harlan. But that is not really how it worked. After Curly Lambeau left the Packers, there was a solid decade before Vince Lombardi came to town. And plenty of bad football happened during that stretch. And plenty of interesting stuff happened, too, even if the ultimate results weren't all that great. For instance, look at the 1956 season. Billy Houghton was absolutely phenomenal that year. He caught 55 passes for 1,188 yards and 12 touchdowns. He averaged 21.6 yards per catch, and his 12 touchdowns were tops in the league, as was his 99 yards per game average. He even caught a few passes from a young rookie quarterback who you may have heard of by the name of Bart Starr. But this happened in one of the dark ages of Packers history. And as a result, it's kind of lost on current audiences. Many, many other great players may be a little bit lost to Packers history as well. But I think we can avoid that by embracing some of these eras in Packers history where things maybe weren't as good as they could be. But there was still Packers football happening nonetheless. Along those lines, the second reform I would like to enact would be to try out some more interesting throwback uniforms. I love the Packers uniforms. I love the idea of their throwback uniforms. But I have been pretty thoroughly disappointed with most of the throwback uniforms that have happened in my lifetime. They had those Kind of, frankly, odd uniforms that they wore on Thanksgiving a long, long time ago during, like, the Amon Green era, early two thousands. They had the bullseye uniforms, uh, the the big yellow circle ones, which were not bad, but not super great either. Not super interesting. Then they had their most recent throwback set, which, uh, well, it was the same as the throwback they used in the early nineties for the NFL seventy fifth anniversary. That is kind of boring. And I realize that they want to go with the blue and gold color scheme because it's different than their current set. They can't really do a ton of green and yellow throwbacks, even though I think they should. Because even if you're sticking with the blue and yellow stuff, blue and gold, or you just want to do something that is in line with their current color scheme, there's a lot of wild stuff that happened in eras that's kind of glossed over. So these throwback sets that they've had center around the Don Hudson or the the Johnny Blood eras of Packers history, the Lambeau years. And that's one of those eras of Packers history that we talked about before. That's one of the acceptable times of Packers history to talk about. But in those eras that we kind of gloss over, a ton of wild and weird and cool stuff happened uniform-wise. There's a solid yellow uniform back there in Packers history someplace, a solid green uniform, a solid white uniform with green numbers. You've got gorgeous 1950s throwbacks that are blue, solid blue uniform, solid blue jersey, gold numbers, the gold Northwestern style stripes, so three stripes, two thin ones on the outside, one thick one in the middle, And then gold pants and a gold helmet. Take the logo off the Packers' current helmet and away you'd go. You'd be ready to go. I would love to see those. Those are the um, uniforms Bart Starr would have worn in his rookie season. Talking about that a little bit earlier. Do something a little bit more unusual. Be a little bit weird. Talk about some of the stuff that didn't happen during the most glorious periods in Packers history because there's more to this team than that. Thirdly, I would like the Packers to become known as the team of analytics. Though the Packers do deal with their share of injuries, they are already among the foremost in their health care. Their assistant team doctor is one of the guys who does surgery on anybody who has like a lower leg injury in the NFL, especially like ankles and foot surgeries. The Packers are among the lead leaders in that kind of healthcare, but I would like to see them be foremost among their data science efforts as well. One of the episodes from the dark season that was 2018 that sticks in my mind was the Seattle Seahawks game. And the Packers had a very good chance late in that game to win. But facing a fourth and two in their own territory, Mike McCarthy decided to punt. And the Packers never got the ball back. But after the game, when asked whether or why he had decided to do that, he said, well, the number's back back up the decision to do what they did, except they don't at all. Let's just read a little bit from uh, Zach Cruz of the Packers Wire about how those numbers actually worked out. Quoting from a piece now titled, More Analytics Say Packers' Decision to Punt Was Wrong. Quote, the Packers' chance of winning after punting was 21%, but they had a 60% chance of converting the fourth and two situation, and a conversion would have increased their chance of winning to 38%. Maybe most damning, the Packers' chance of winning had they turned the ball over on down was still 20%. So McCarthy gained next to nothing by punting. End quote. What if we could avoid making decisions like that? And what if we could make better decisions overall just by using data and data science? I think it's a possibility, but right now the Packers don't have, at least publicly, an identified analytics operation or somebody who works on the data science aspects of football. They've got Mike Hallback, the director of football technology, Connor Lewis, a football technology analyst, and Jack Prominsky, who also fills the same role. But that's more technology related. And it's not really clear what Role they play in any in helping the Packers make good decisions about what goes on the field or how rosters are constructed, but look at what the Baltimore Ravens are doing. They posted four jobs in the last month for data-related positions. Two quantitative analysts and two data specialist interns uh, are, you know, in need in in Baltimore. Uh, People are searching for these kind of players or people. Here's what the quantitative analyst will do for the Baltimore Ravens. This position, quoting from the, uh, the job posting, uh, this position is primarily responsible for organizing and analyzing football tracking and performance data through the use of advanced statistical techniques. Roles and responsibilities including, include designing, analyzing, testing, and implementing interpretable predictive models, integrating multiple sources of tracking and performance data across all football systems, identifying, diagnosing, and resolving data quality issues. Later on, They describe it a little bit more this way. In plain language, they say, we're looking for someone who loves analyzing sports data and doesn't take themselves too seriously. You've got to be a self-starter who knows how to set and achieve your own goals. If you've worked with tracking and performance data before, great. If you can create machine-learned artificial intelligence spatio-temporal algorithms even better. If you can't but have strong math and statistics skills, that could help our group make the best possible recommendations. You should apply. That sounds pretty cool, and I know that the Packers do a little bit, probably more than most, honestly, with uh, some of this on-field tracking stuff, but that data is available to everybody. We could probably even break down some of that stuff on our own, given what's available from the NFL Advanced Stats departments and things like that. The Ravens are pushing the, bo- uh, the borders of this field here a little bit, and I would love to see the Packers do that, and if I was king of the Packers, that's exactly what we would do. Back to how this team's look, how this team looks. And this is going to be I guess looking looking at it now it's going to be a little bit more uniform heavy than just about anything else, but that shows how little there is maybe to change about the Packers just from the outside looking in. I wish the Packers would tweak their current uniforms. And let me be clear, I love the Packers uniforms, but I think they can be improved. And here's how I would do that. Probably more so than any other sport, football uniforms are a little bit crowded. And I don't mean crowded in terms of there being a lot going on on the uniforms, because by and large, most football uniforms, football jerseys in particular, are pretty straightforward. But they're crowded because there's just not a lot of real estate on a football uniform. Most of them are practically painted on at this point, they're stuck down to shoulder pads super tightly, they're snug. Tech offensive linemen and defensive linemen sometimes look like sausages bursting at the seams. They've been poured into these uniforms, and there's not a lot of room there. There's not a lot to play around with on a football uniform. So you gotta be intentional about the decisions you make. And if you're not careful, things can get really crowded just in terms of the elements that you have on your uniforms. And I think the Packers could clean them up, clean up their uniforms just ever so slightly and have a great looking set. The area I think that is especially crowded on the Packers uniform occurs above the chest seam um, on the football jersey. So if you look at the Packers uniforms, look right above the numbers. There's a horizontal seam running right through the middle of the upper chest. That's the chest seam that I'm talking about. Above that chest seam there's a whole ton of stuff. Most of the stuff on the Packers jersey occurs in that area. You've got stripes on the sleeve, a manufacturer's logo on the sleeve, the striped collar, the TV numbers on the shoulders, uh, the collar logo, the NFL logo, and this year it's going to be the NFL 100 logo, plus any patches you put on during the season. That's a lot of stuff in a relatively small area. What I would like to do Is tweak the Packers uniforms by removing their collar stripe. This would make their current uniform set look a lot more like the classic Lombardi era uniforms. It would take a little bit of crowding out of that area, and I think it would be a clean, simple way to simplify an already very clean uniform. It is a little bit crowded in that area, but I think doing this would ease that crowding just a little bit. If you want to look what, at what I'm talking about with crowding in their uniforms, look at a guy like Aaron Jones. He's a little guy. So he's going to have a small jersey just to begin with. Almost all of the stuff on that top half of his jersey above the chest seam is almost all on top of each other. And I think you could improve the overall look of the uniform by getting rid of that collar stripe and uh, just going with the, 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 the plain collar there. I think that would look really good. Finally, let's lead the charge with the Packers on how uniform number retirements work. Last week, the Monday morning quarterback did something interesting. They called it bad take week. Everybody just had to to get their unpopular or maybe just wrong takes off their chests. And one of their, their writers said that the NFL should do away with uh, retiring numbers. I don't think you should completely do away with it, but I think you can tweak it just a little bit. There are some teams that are a little bit out of control when it comes to jersey numbers and and retiring jersey numbers. The Chicago Bears are probably the worst offenders here. They have 14 retired numbers to the point now that it's almost hard for them to fully fill out a roster because well, they just don't have enough numbers to go around. Just look at the numbers that are not available for linemen. They've got 51, 56, 61, 66, and 77 all retired. That's pretty tough if you're trying to fill out linebackers, defensive linemen, and offensive linemen. That's a problem. But I think we could tweak this in a way that allows you to still retire numbers, but not run out. I think you limit the number of The amount of numbers that you can have retired at one time. And then when you want to retire a new number, you bring the oldest number back. So say you limited the number of jersey numbers you can retire to five. I don't want to try to figure out how that would work for the Bears. Uh, So let's let's circle back and, and do it for the Packers here because they've got a nice number to deal with. They only have six numbers retired currently. In this scenario, If the Packers wanted to retire a new number, you would bring the oldest one that they currently have retired back into circulation. And turning to the archives, that means that Don Hudson's number 14 would have to come out of retirement. Now, that's slightly distasteful, but let's try to soften the blow here just a little bit. Don Hudson's number was retired in 1951. He last played in 1945. How old is the oldest is the youngest person who actually remembers seeing Don Hudson play? It's a small percentage of Packers fans. It's a small percentage of the people who have ever watched a football game. It's a very very small number. And you still could figure out a way for that number to be honored. Michigan did something like this a while back where they let guys who were wearing numbers that had formerly been retired have some kind of patch on their jersey that called back to that former player. Uh, A writer for Windy City Gridiron said that maybe, you know, like the the Bears have George Hallis' initials on their sleeve. Maybe below that, if you're wearing a number that's come back into circulation, um, you put the the player who used to wear that number, their initials would go under George Hallis's. The Packers could probably make something like that work. Or since the top half of the jersey that we're going to be wearing in these new Packers that I am changing... Um, since the top half of their jersey is going to be a lot cleaner because there's no collar stripe, we could put a patch in that part of the jersey. There's a number of ways you could work this out. This could also allow you to retire more numbers since there would be constantly numbers coming back into circulation. This would allow you to do things like retiring, say, Donald Driver's number 80 or Jordy Nelson's number 87, For just a while, until maybe the association with Jordy Nelson or whoever it happens to be kind of fades away a little bit. If 10, 15, 20 years go by with nobody wearing 87 or 80, by the time the next 80 or 87 comes around, we're probably ready for somebody new to wear it. And it's a good opportunity at that point to remember a player who, A, is probably still alive to be honored again, and uh, B... Uh, just have a new guy wear it. And it would prevent recently retired players' numbers from going to, well, maybe suboptimal players like Martellus Bennett wearing Donald Driver's number 80. All in all, this helps the Packers, I think, embrace their history a little bit more, since you'd have a chance to educate people about those former great players, while also um, giving newer, more modern players an interesting honor. So it fits with my overall goal of helping players or helping the Packers as a whole remember their history. Let's do something completely different. Talking about history, we've talked about history a lot lately. And uh, one of the things I've emphasized as we've had this discussion is going to primary sources, to people who were there, to people who actually remember things or did things or saw things happen With their own eyes. I've got a great book by Chuck Carlson called Game of My Life, Memorable Stories of Packers Football. I've been going through some books in my personal collection lately, and this one caught my eye. I hadn't paged through it in a while, but this is a good book because he talks about great moments in Packers history and then gets the actual players involved to tell the story. We've been talking about Bart Starr a lot lately, and there's a chapter in this book About Bart Starr and his efforts in the ice bowl. And I just wanted to take a second to read his description of the end of that game to you. So here is Bart Starr describing the game of his life. Foremost in my mind is the ice bowl because of its significance on several levels. Football fans remember the weather which was no doubt a key element. What some observers forget is that we were a team competing for our third consecutive national championship and our fifth title in the decade of the 1960s, yet we were playing with several starters on the injured list. That's what stands out, in my mind, even more than the weather. There are a couple things about the game that people may not remember. The change in the weather from Saturday to Sunday was one. When we went out for our light Saturday workout, the field was in great condition. The temperature was zero, but there was no wind. The problem developed overnight as a cold front moved in and led to a damaged heating system under the field. At kickoff, the footing was tolerable, but as the game progressed, it deteriorated to the point where we were skating rather than running. In addition, few football experts wrote about the quality of the Cowboys team. They were talented, physical, and well-prepared. We were more experienced, but they had earned the right to be there. Despite the brutal weather, the Cowboys nearly matched us that day, and it took every bit of creativity and determination on our part to win the game. As we ran onto the field to start what would be our last drive, I stepped into the huddle and looked into the eyes of my teammates. I knew instantly that nothing needed to be said regarding the importance of that opportunity. Everyone knew exactly what was at stake and what would be required. I do not believe we can single out any play as the most important of that drive because the very nature of a game-winning drive is that every play is crucial. I prefer to focus on the tremendous contributions from a couple players who never received enough credit. We had a dedicated, committed group of guys who were also very bright. For example, Donnie Anderson, our halfback, observed that the linebacker covering him was dropping off into deeper than normal coverage, which meant I could safely pass the ball to him for modest but steady gains. Chuck Mersine, our fullback, noted that the linebacker covering him was staying far too was staying too far toward the middle of the field, which allowed us to achieve a large gain on a relatively simple swing pass. Equally important was a play we planned for but had not yet tried. We waited until it was perfect for that drive. I handed the ball to Chuck Mersenne on what was called an influence play. If you were looking at the back of our offensive line, our left guard pulled to the right. Cowboys defensive tackle Bob Lilly was opposite him and changing at an angle, almost, or charging at an angle almost parallel to the line, which meant that we could not block him cleanly. We decided to use Lilly's tremendous quickness and anticipation to our advantage. We pulled our guard, Gail Gillingham, to the right, hoping that Lilly would try to beat him to the point of attack. This would take Lily out of the play, which was going to be run in the spot where he was originally lined up. This was a risky call, but I believed the time had come to try it, as the adrenaline was running full tilt and Lilly would try to make a play for, the def- for their defense, which he had done so many times. There was a second part of this play, without which we could not have succeeded. If Lily took himself out of the intended hole, we knew that the Cowboys defensive end, George Andre, would cover the area unless our left tackle, Bob Skoronsky, could cut him off. I asked Bob if he could make that block and he said yes. That was all I needed to hear. The play was a huge success, the highlight of the drive. Chuck gained eight crucial yards, and if the field had been better, he might have scored. At that occurred, the quarterback's sneak on the goal line would have been moot, It was the most memorable play I ever called. It perfectly illustrated how important it was for every player to execute his block. Because if Skoronsky had failed to cut off Andre, we would have achieved only a one or two yard gain. In my opinion, Skoronsky should be in the Hall of Fame. He was an outstanding offensive tackle. Had he not been overshadowed by his teammate, Forrest Gregg, one of the best tackles ever to play the game, he would already be in Canton. That game certainly helped our spirit. It had the toughest year imaginable. We were two-time defending NFL champions, badly banged up, and everybody wanted an extra piece of us. Each team was at its best whenever we played them. That is the most Bart Starr story, not just because it's in his own words. Everything about Bart Starr and his legacy tends to focus on how he made other people feel. And I think it's pretty cool that in a book called Game of My Life, the person Bart Starr talks about the least is himself, the guy who scored the game-winning touchdown in one of the most famous games in NFL history. Yet here's Starr, the hero of the game, talking about how great Donnie Anderson was, how great the offensive line play was, how great the Dallas Cowboys were, the team they beat that day. That says a lot about Bart Starr. And we could all do with a lesson on how to focus on other people's instead of ourselves. So I've got for you on this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate you taking the time to download and tune in. If you like what you heard and want to help us keep doing more of it, the best way to support the show is to leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. That does help more people find the show. And don't forget to subscribe. If you want to take your support to the next level, we've got a couple of op- options for you. The best one is for you to head to patreon.com slash thepowersweep, donating $1 Per month is enough to offset our hosting costs for the podcast and for our site. And don't forget as well to check out our great t-shirts and sweatshirts by clicking the shop link at thepowersweep.com. You'll see the full selection there. If you've got an idea for the show or just want to say hi, reach out via Facebook. Twitter, our contact page, or by email by typing thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com into the address bar of the email provider of your choice. As always, every bit of feedback you give us helps us make Blue58 and the Power Sweep better, which furthers our mission of helping everyone become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue58.